what Octavia pushes back on is you do not know where liberation is happening. You don't know where those seeds have taken root. You have to actually sit with people, look in their eyes, ask the key questions you need to know the answers to, and actually sense at a gut level, is this someone who's trustworthy? I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, co-editor of Octavius Brood, writer, facilitator, auntie, doula, and pleasure activist living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. All right, all right. We are going to have a conversation that we feel like, um, you know, we should probably lead this conversation as we often lead many of our conversations with a bit of a trigger warning. Um, We are going to be talking about... um, how we sustain movements under state violence and repression um, and how we respond in the um, crises that are created under conditions of state violence and repression. Um, And so, of course, we're going to be talking about some of the specific types of state violence that we ourselves have witnessed um, and that other activists and, and organizers that we are in community have witnessed or have experienced directly. Um, so we will be talking about assault, we will be talking about murder, um, and we will be talking about how we sustain ourselves and sustain our souls um, and sustain the work um, in spite of and through those kinds of um, moves that the state um, and various apparatuses of the state will take to stop stop us from transforming society. We have a quote from Octavia Butler, and we're going to be talking a lot about what she's offered in into this conversation. But the quote that that seemed right for this is um, this piece of Earth Seed: "In order to rise from its own ashes." A phoenix first must burn. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I read that, you know, it struck me so intensely. And then reading it in the context of the parable, the talents, where um, a huge part of what happens is this beautiful, idealistic community has been developed. And then it gets completely smashed by this right wing, right wing Christian um, operation that is kind of backed by the state and aligned with the state's politics in a way that feels very present and like what we're living in right now. Um, and they go through everything. Their community gets destroyed. People are killed. People are enslaved and forced to work the land. People are separated from their kids. People are separated from their loved ones. Um, People get to people are are all um, being imprisoned in the same space and really witnessing um, the terror and the impact. Yeah, and and similar to what's happening right now, 
not only are people in the acorn community separated from their kids, but their kids are literally taken, um, taken completely away from them and actually adopted out into quote unquote, good Christian families. So most of the people who are in the acorn community, even once they're able to overthrow their oppressors, most of them are never able to recover their children, um, are never, um, it, it's, um, it's, I think almost completely for all of the families there, I think none of them are able to be reunited with their children. Right. So again, that feels a lot like what we're fighting right now and trying to stop from happening right now with our borders where we're like, Oh, we're living in a country where this is actively happening right now. People are being separated from their children with no clarity on when they'll be reunited, no sense of clear guidelines or rules or any of those things, no sense of humanity. Um, it's racism and it's attack and it's xenophobia, right? So mm -hmm. I want to say to our listeners um, that we're going to dive in like kind of deep on the hard part. And then we're our goal is to really then talk about how we keep sustaining relationships and holding movement and moving forward. Um, so we want to land in a place that really has us oriented towards what do we do? Um, but in order to get there, there's some some pieces that we need to cover. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, Autumn, to start off with sharing um, about your friend, Brad. Yeah. So uh, when we were, when Adrian and I were talking about doing this show, um, we were talking about how um, the how the internet itself has actually changed the way that we all. Um, relate to view and understand state violence and um, because of the fact that um, that video documentation of state violence as it's unfolding is is a, more readily available to our generation than it's ever been available to anyone um, and I was thinking about the fact that I was thinking about the fact that one of the most sort of um, painful and I think um, sort of uh, like fault line experiences that I had as a young activist was the murder of my comrade Brad Will. And um, he was murdered 11 years ago on October 27th um, while he was working as a journalist in Oaxaca and documenting the uprising there. And so his, his murder was caught. He actually captured his own murder on film because he was filming. He was, he was filming with his camera at the time that he was shot. Um, and and someone, I, I, I'm not sure who actually, but someone uploaded the footage to a website. And so within a couple of days of learning that he had been murdered, um, all of us who were in community with him had access to that footage. Oh um, and many, I, I still have a very clear memory of like exactly where I was and who I was with when I sat down and watched the footage of his, of his murder. Um, and it really, I mean, it, it changed us. I mean, obviously <laughs> that sort of feels yes. like almost, um, 
almost uh, silly or flippant to say, but it it really did for those of us who were, you know, I, I talk about this often when I talk to folks about the history of the Rock Dove Collective because um, the Rock Dove Collective was the the reason why I knew Brad that he was a co-founder of that project, which was a, a mutual aid based healthcare project that. I and a bunch of other activists co-created when we were living in New York back in in the Autios. And um and he was murdered within the first year of us starting that project and and it really like it changed the way the the rest of us who were in that collective it changed the way that we understood our relationship to each other and it changed the way we understood what our work even was, right? Because you know, <laughs> it's one thing to be like, we're looking, we're, we're trying to figure out how to, from the beginning of that project, we were looking at the question of how do we actually sustain individuals involvement in this incredibly painful, uh-huh. difficult work, right? Uh-huh. Um, the painful, difficult work of, of trying to change the way society functions and deal with systemic oppression. Like we were, we very much had this sort of orientation of, Obviously, we want mutual aid-based networks of care mm-hmm. and health care that are available to everybody, but we're particularly focusing on activists and organizers from the beginning. And then we lose one of ours, and it changed the way that we understood why our work mattered, right? Because suddenly mm-hmm. everyone in our community that we're working with is completely traumatized both by the loss of this person, but also by the fact that we all witnessed how he died, right? Yes. And and so suddenly we're called in to provide support at a completely different level than what we had been prepared for or thinking about. And yes. so it really, really changed how we understood what our work was. Um, and it really was very humbling because we we very quickly realized how out of our depth both we were, but also how anyone who's in <laughs> anyone who's in movement how out of depth how out of our depth we all really are in terms of actually being able to confront those kinds of traumatic conditions and um so i think about that i think about that experience still to this day when i yeah. when i anytime i hear that there is video documentation of someone being murdered by the state because in this case you know in the in brad's case it's like it's i think pretty much been proven that the person who actually murdered him was a functionary of the mexican state was probably Mm -hmm. this judge um and so anytime i know that anytime i know that there is video documentation available or coming forward of someone in in community here being murdered by a functionary of the state or by the state itself, it, it takes me back immediately to that moment. And I have to, I have to be really careful in terms of how I engage with it. And I, I find that if I know that the video is out there, then I really reduce my engagement with social media until I feel ready to actually see it so that it's happening on my terms that I'm going to actually like look at it. Um, And, and yet I think that the, like the fact that like, I think it's so important that these videos are available. And I feel like there's something about the, 
the omnipresent way that they become available that I find questionable or concerning um, because I think that people are not necessarily accessing choice in terms of whether they're engaging with the material and it is traumatizing material, yeah. obviously, to be engaging with. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I feel like that feels like a big question for me of like how as how as activists and organizers do we orient to the reality of this? Like this is our reality is that we, you know, that if we do this work, the likelihood that we will attract repressive violence from the state is very high. How do we, and, and that we're losing our own people. How do we interact with that without losing our minds? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what it is. It's like without losing our minds and without losing our, capacity to take action um and to you know it's like how to be properly careful and properly afraid and also keep moving um mm -hmm. and so I want to share um you know a few things on on my side of this um a few years ago I got to meet an activist named Berta Caceres and she was the co-founder of the popular indigenous organizations of Honduras. Mm. And I got to be part of a panel with her at the Environmental Grant Makers Association. Um, and we only spent a morning together. And so it always blows my mind that it has this much impact on me. But she was one of those people who like, as soon as you're at a table with her in a room with her, um, you can feel the personal power that she has. Like she wow. is shifting the world. Mm -hmm. She's changing the world. And we were speaking with an interpreter. So we were having, it's, it, it still blows my mind, like the kind of depth that we reached in a very short period of time with this person doing interpreting for us and interpreting for the room. And she was so captivating and so powerful um, that I think it was one of the most powerful speeches and, and talks I've ever seen anyone do, period, ever. Mm -hmm. um, and it just showed me like, you know, having these spaces where people are able to all come and move the world and shape the world in their own tongue is actually so crucial. Yeah. Um, like yeah. that nothing was lost in translation, that actually something was gained by the collaborative work of it. Um, but she was doing this this environmental work and indigenous rights work in Honduras. And um, and she had said, she was like, I have reason to be afraid for my life. Like she understood that she was in a period of great risk. Yeah. Um, and on March 3rd, so I met her in the fall of 2015 um, and just started following her work. And she was winning awards. She was in the U.S. people. She was on the radar of organizers here. Um, and then in on March 3rd of 2016, she was assassinated in her home and mm. um, she was killed. You know, the folks, I think as of 2017, they were doing investigation around like, you know, who actually was responsible for her assassination. And it traced back to troops who had been trained in the School of the Americas in Fort wow. Benning, Georgia. Wow. Holy yeah. shit. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was devastating for the community, devastating for so many folks who were actually trying to hold back the lines around 
environmental and climate crisis Mm -hmm. and around indigenous sovereignty and how those things are deeply linked together because so Mm -hmm. much of the time it's like trying to remove the people who know and protect and love a place in order to then um, pillage and rape the land of that place. Um, And so that is one piece where I was just like, oh, how does, how do the organizers in Honduras continue? How do we as an international and, you know, as a global movement that is trying to do this work around climate and environmental justice continue? Not um, to mention the fact that like in, I think if I remember correctly, she had four kids. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's also that component of like, there's like the layer inside the layer inside the layer of like, and now, cause then, cause anytime something like this happens, there's a way that the community also has to respond to ensure that the children or or direct direct cared for people of these folks who have been murdered are getting yeah. the level of support that they need yeah. and oftentimes it's the fa- the family just gets like disappeared also inside the yeah. conversation about like how are we responding to this person's murder i don't know how that went down with her family but i mean that's yeah. just fascinating yeah i mean i think that I actually, you know, there's a lot that I'm not sure of um, around like her family. I know that she had children and Mm -hmm. I know that her children have some of them have spoken out, um, I believe. Mm. But it's something that I would I would dive into more. And I'm glad you brought that up because I'm also thinking about folks. So, you know, there's folks like her who are taking an explicit risk. Like they're like, I'm an aware, I'm aware of the risks that I'm taking. Brad, you know, there's like, I'm aware of some of the danger of that I'm taking. Although in Brad's case, you know, that idea of like, I'm press, I'm, I'm covering something that has always been like, that'll be safe is like, you know, we just go in and out of that actually being a safe space. And to me, that's one of the, the biggest growing signs of fascism is when you cannot expect that the media can be safe in trying to tell the truth about what's happening to the, mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. population. I also think there's stuff where it's a little more mm, mysterious. Like, it's like, what's actually happening? So I want to bring in here the Ferguson assassinations, um, mm. the Ferguson activists who have been killed since the uprising there. And it's DeAndre Joshua, Darren Seals, and most recently Edward Crawford. And Edward was the person who was in the sort of iconic shot of the person throwing the like um, throwing like the lit cocktail, Molotov cocktail. Um, he's wearing like he's got the American flag in his hand, mm-hmm. and there's like a fire behind him, and he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's so he was. All of these folks were shot, and there's this really big question around like how do we start to tie together when something is happening and what is happening, and how do we actually turn our attention when it's needed um, to be like we're asking people to take such risks and we're all benefiting from those risks. Like every person in this country, I believe really benefits from uh, activists and organizers challenging a status quo that makes people endangered based on race, based on class, based on ethnicity, based on gender, based on sexuality, like all of those, any, as long, you know, I really believe that as long as any one of us, is endangered by the state. All of us are endangered by the state because what we allow then is a pattern in which the state can determine who gets to live, who gets to die, who's a human, who's not a human. And there's no difference to me between that and chattel slavery or a Holocaust condition. Like as long as you are 
as long you're on that spectrum, basically, of saying some people have rights and some don't. And we're actively on that spectrum here in the US right, right now. And one of the to me, one of the main ways you measure that is whose deaths matter. And yes. how do they matter? Mm-hmm. And um, whose deaths do we look at and whose deaths do we turn away from? Mm-hmm. I think so much of the work of Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives and Mi Gente, um, all these movements that have been rising up in this moment is to be like, all of these lives actually matter and the deaths actually matter. They mean yes. something to us. Yes. We will not let you turn away from them. We see the pattern. Yeah. Um, we won't be fooled. We see because... the political significance of each of these murders. Exactly. Right. We understand what's happening. Um, and I feel like it's so, just to me, it's so important to name this because we grew up in an environment where this is an assassination nation, you know? Like, I, I feel like I, I never want to pretend like we don't have a huge history <laughs> of this happening. And most recently with the civil rights movement of this mm-hmm. really um, bringing a movement to what felt like a stop for decades. And right. Right. Um, I think that it's important to know that every time we make those moves forward, the backlash is so intense. And I think that, you know, when I was younger, I remember feeling like I can just take so much risk. I can be in this theoretical revolutionary mode and just, you know, do stuff. Um, and that it felt like it wasn't a time when so much repression was coming down. And what I recognize now is that that was just because I was a privileged college kid and that blocks away from me, Amadou Diallo was getting killed in front of his house, like blocks down from me. People were getting picked up picked up by Giuliani's um, street squads all the time activists non-activists right the I also want to talk about the lines between those who are doing movement work and those who are just in communities that are living inside these issues because right. I think those lines right. get really blurred mm-hmm. um, and we, like who you know, the who the state actually sees as a threat you know, like, because there is a thing that happens in activist community where, like, we think that if the state is going to come after somebody, it's going to be us. But, like, the state has a really different viewpoint often about, like, who actually um, who actually needs to be repressed in order for a community to remain um, as disempowered as the state needs it to be. And yeah. I think that that's really, like, it's it's choiceful for the state to murder the children. Like it's not an accident that like that, that many of the people who are targeted by the state in the black community are teenage men and teenage women, right? That it's like old enough to be viewed as an adult, but young enough to be experienced as, as the deaths of children. Like, I think it's not like that kind of behavior is not coincidental. And I think that like, and it speaks to the particular psychology of that type of oppression or yeah. the type of repression of people's power. That it's like we are looking to not just repress you, but to demoralize you to the extent that you don't believe it's actually worth it to do yes. anything to stop this from happening. Right. Like that's our goal. <laughs> you know, it's like, and this yes. is the same tactics that we see the Israeli government using in Palestine. Right. Exactly. Like they are doing the exact same thing. They're going after young teenage Palestinian boys. Right. That like, that's who they're going house to house, breaking in, in the middle of the and night girls. And, yeah. and girls. Right. And like checking their papers. Like yes. it's, it's terror, you know? So it's, it's terror. It's, yeah. And I just finished reading, um, Homegoing by Yajasi, and 
I can't stop talking about this book, but it basically talks about the the middle passage and the slave trade and what was the thinking of the slave owners and the folks who were actually moving folks along. Um, you see so many different angles of it. And, but one of the things they talk about is that like it's really intentional, this idea of breaking people. And I think that that idea or that strategy of breaking people has not really gone anywhere. And I, I read a piece this week. Um, I'm going to try to figure out who wrote this piece. Um, it was really moving to me. It was about the cruelty is the point. It's in the Atlantic. And it actually looks at the Museum of African American History and Culture um, and going back the way we did and sort of being like, oh, okay, Adam Surer is the writer of this. But it talks about how President Trump and his supporters find community by rejoicing in the suffering of those they hate and fear, right? So for me, it comes up so powerfully because I'm like, we're talking about these situations that for us are so traumatizing and so scary and designed to create these boundaries around us that make us feel we should not keep fighting for power. And then you step back and you're like, it's happening at the level of death and violence, but it's also happening at the level of just attacking anyone who tries to come up with what feels like a logical way forward. So like other examples of this are, you know, Rebecca Solna just posted a piece where mm -hmm. one of the Sandy Hook parents was saying that they finally, after all these years, have stopped getting hate mail. Um, and it's like, why would you send someone hate mail when their child has been killed, right? And it's right. because Sandy Hook is being used as a way to challenge gun ownership and gun laws, right? right. And right. there's a conservative body in this country that's just like, we will not consider any reasonable, logical options on this. It just has to be that everyone has access to something that is killing our children and we don't give a fuck, right? right. So that's one level of it that we just... That, that trolling becomes so, you know, it's like trolling happens on the internet and it happens in these real life ways where it's just like all the attention, all this negative, horrific, hateful, anti-human mm -hmm. attention mm -hmm. starts moving. I think with the Kavanaugh hearings, it's been so deep to just see again how when a woman or multiple women step forward to be like, I am a victim, someone caused me harm. Right. But the first moves that we make on a public level is to attack and try to destroy the victim for stepping forward, right? Right. And like in each of these scenarios, that's what's happening is we're saying, here's someone who's a victim. They're either acting as a movement person, that victim, or they're just living their fucking lives and they're a victim. And right. they're responding right. and being like, hey, this shit fucking isn't fair and I want to change the situation. The situation. The uh, situation. I want to change this situation. Let's write to, a whole piece about that. Like, compost it. But this person, you know, people standing up for themselves in a way that they should absolutely be able to do mm. and getting attacked, getting their lives destroyed, their reputations destroyed, their families attacked. They have to move out of their houses. They're in danger or they're straight up shot in their car. I mean, it's just like this right. is the time that we're living in. Right. Right. And conversely, the, the story in. that's being told. Yes. Right. Like the. You know, I mean, it's amazing to watch like the mainstream media narrative where yeah. like, you know, I mean, I, I don't remember who said this first. It's like an it was an article that came out shortly after the uh, election of Donald Trump, where um, where someone was writing about the whole problem of how the mainstream media interacts with the concept of identity politics. 
And, you know, and they were tracing the lineage of that terminology, identity politics, and like really claiming it and owning it as like, this is a term that comes to us from black feminism. And like, it's a term that's really essentially about saying because of whiteness and the racialization that flows out of whiteness, all identity is political. That's what we're saying. Right. And so, and the person inside in that, in that piece said, you know, they were critiquing like liberals and leftists for um, trying to move away from identity politics and being like, Hey y'all, you don't walk into a narrative that's been constructed by your oppressors and say like, yeah, that story is true for me, you know, <laughs> like, yes, you know, so right. I feel like it's this, it's, I feel like I'm watching the same thing play out in the mainstream yeah. media right now about this, where it's like the narrative that it's Brett Kavanaugh's life that's been <laughs> upended Yes. by this yes. is like is a, another one of those like sick reversals yes. and and yet the mainstream media I mean not even just the mainstream media but many media outlets are like taking on this narrative and asking yes. the question about like is it fair yes and it's just I like, mean it's so you know it's so interesting about? to me I think that this is like public the public and collective gaslighting process right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. where you take something you know, in each of these cases, you take something where someone is saying, I'm trying to actually do good for my community. I'm trying to help people be better. I experienced some kind of harm. I want to make sure it doesn't happen to other people. So mm-hmm. I'm going to try to take that's that's 90,000% of these cases. It's like some sh- something happened to me that is inhumane and it should not happen anymore. And I'd like to stop that from happening. And then the gaslighting flips it on the person and says, actually, you speaking the harm aloud that causes harm to me and now I'm the victim. And, right. you right. know, I think we see that with Kavanaugh, with Cosby, with all these different people. And then with America at large, like as a project, as a political project, where right. people really feel like America is under attack when its own basic constitution is brought into the light and spoken aloud. People feel like the freaking How dare you? is under attack, right? <laughs> so I think that then we say, okay, we're in this period. It feels illogical. It feels, you know, it feels irrational. It feels hysterical. And it's hard not to land into a reactionary way of just being in the world. And so I do want to uplift this thing that I said a while ago because it helps me pivot and start to look at Acorn and Zapatistas and other models of like, how do people survive and keep moving forward? Mm -hmm. So it's this, things are not getting worse. They're getting uncovered. We must hold each other tight and continue to pull back the veil. I really believe that so many of these cases are like, when they get exposed, when we see, oh, this is what's happening to me, we have to understand it as like, this is happening all the time. Right. This has been happening. This is what humans are up to and what we're doing to each other. Right. And it's Grace's birthday. I mean, it's Grace's, um, it's the anniversary of Grace's passing today, the day that we're recording this, October 5th. And, mm-hmm. you know, Grace, Grace Lee Boggs, she talked about so many things in her life. Um, but she was always asking, like, what is the time that we're actually in? Like, what time is it on the clock of the world? What time, what moment are we in? Mm-hmm. And I feel like we often miss the moments that we're in. Like, we don't know the context that we're in. And these moments of trauma make it even harder to understand the moments that we're in. And Hmm. so in this moment, I'm like, I could see that we are winning. Like I could see a way in which we are actually, and not winning on the like win, lose, let's go back and forth with these violent people, but actually winning in the sense of exposing 
that there are people who are aligned with humanity and people who are not aligned with humanity. And that's the level of distinction that we're talking about right now. And we have to stop trying to pretend like we can appeal to the moral code of mm-hmm. those who are actually not aligned with humanity. Right. And I think that that's what we keep doing is we're like, well, look at all this trauma and violence. Let's just put all of our energy on elections. Look at all this trauma and violence. Let's put all of our energy on policy change. Uh, you know, if we can just change the policy, if we can just appeal to these people. And I think this is a big part of claiming Dr. Ford's dignity, Dr. Ford, you know, Dr. Blasey Ford's victory or claiming any of these victories is saying like, we, we're not going to win by playing the game of violent oppressors. <laughs> we have to actually create new terms and new mm-hmm. locations and go towards a greater destiny. And so this is where Octavia becomes our teacher again, is that she offers us what happened after Acorn was destroyed. Yes. Yeah. 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 I feel like a couple of things in terms of what you just shared that. So I love this. I love this um, orientation from Grace Lee Boggs of like, do we know what the time is on the clock of the world? Um, And actually, I would say I think that the particular types of trauma and violence that we are like living through are indicators for us about what is the time on the clock of the world if we're willing to like look at them directly and take seriously what the data shows us. Right. Yes. And and I really agree with you. Right. That like. You know, and I say this all the time to the organizers that I work with, that like we have to always understand our losses in relation to our wins. And we have to always understand the our failures in relationship to our victories, like that oftentimes the things that feel like losses are only happening in the wake of. Um, extraordinary movement building, you know, and, you know, I feel like I've been like a broken record on this for the last year, but like there's very direct relationship between what happened in 1968 and what's happening in 2018 in terms of like what type of person is getting elected on what type of platform in the wake of what level of movement victories, right? Like there's, we, we, we cannot, we cannot pretend that this right now, I, I don't agree with people who are like, this is the death rattle of white supremacy because it's right. not a, it's not a death rattle, but I would say that like, we have to recognize that like, it's another one of those fault line moments. Yeah. Um, and I do think that like, I really appreciate what you said about, you know, we have to stop like wasting all of our energy on appealing to like the the moral code of people who don't have a moral code. Um, (laughs) because I think that, I think that that's real. And I, and I remember too recently that, um, you know, this, this environmental activist and environmental and food justice activist who I adore, um, LaDonna Redman, um, she, who has recently gone through, um, her own really significant painful loss. Again, talking about like our community and people going through significant traumas, um, and she's been very like, um, just incredible in terms of her public open grieving. Yes. Um, but she, she always says, she's like, we are so focused on the 2% of people who will never agree with us yes. that we miss the 98% of people who are ready to be moved by our story. Right. And I think that that's like, that's part of the challenge of like the, of, of, I I think the challenge of the way trauma and violence actually does relate to our political strategy, because one of the things that we know about trauma and violence or, or 
traumatic experiences, period, yeah. whether they're violent or not, um, or whether they involve like direct violence or not, is that trauma, trauma disorders the yes. memory. It disorders our ability to like, um, it, it makes it really hard for us to be able to order something and make a story out of it, right? I mean, this yes. is a big part of what Dr. Blasey Ford was talking about actually in her testimony because yes. she's a scientist. Um, and that means that it's very easy in the wake of a traumatic experience or inside of a traumatic experience to become very myopically focused on yes. the one thing that feels visible to you. Right. Yeah. And I think that like, there, it's like the, to me, there's a connection there between the fact that we are living inside of chronically traumatic conditions yeah. and the fact that it means that those of us who are often are on the receiving end of various types of state repression become very myopically focused on particular strategies yes. um, and think that like our strategy is the only strategy that works. So like yes, I have yes, to do yes. X, Y, Z in order to move this percentage of people in order to win this many legislative seats. And like, that's yes. the only thing that's going to keep us yes. in power. Right. And it's like, okay, deep breaths. Yeah. That's a strategy. Yes. How is like, how does that strategy interact with, the collective, like how does yes. that strategy interact with all of the other strategies that we could potentially be using right now? Yeah. Cause we actually need all of them. <laughs> well, and I'm so excited cause I feel like you're previewing a bit of uh, one of our upcoming episodes where we're going to have three point strategies come on and talk about this upcoming election from a perspective of community organizing, from a perspective of like moving a black agenda forward and really yes. they work in such a sense of interconnected strategy. So I'm super happy that, cause I deeply agree with you. And I also feel like there's something about letting go of strategies that you're not actually going to move. Um, mm -hmm. and trusting, you know, it's like there's folks out there, like some of the folks who are that we've shared that have died at the hands of the state are folks who are like, I'm actively moving a direct action strategy. Or I'm actually challenging the government directly. That's a choice that I'm making. And then there's folks who are like, I'm actively going to move an electoral strategy or folks who are like, I'm actively going to move a media strategy or whatever it is. But I feel like folks don't acknowledge like you can move your strategy and everyone else doesn't have to. And this is where I think it starts to really get into Octavia teaching. Cause one of the things that happened after acorn was destroyed was I feel like, I feel like Lauren Olamina, the main character, she kind of has an aha moment of like, I can't, I can't get everyone. Like right. I can't do these massive institution building projects where I just make a location and try to keep that safe. That's not actually the way that we're going to be able to get to this massive vision of a destiny for human beings to take root amongst the stars. It's right. not going to happen. And I love that. I love that as a destiny because it's just like so grand and so beyond just being an oppressed person trying to get out of oppression. Like right. so right. often I'm like, that cannot be the goal. I'm not of trying humanity. to get free. I'm trying to get to the stars. Exactly. Right? It's just sort of like, I'm actually done with this whole experiment, the way that you're doing it. And you know, there's lots to play with there because I love this planet. I'm a huge fight for getting to be on this planet and not be oppressed every day and not be at threat of death every day and be in communities that are like that. And I also feel like this planet, the pl not the planet, this the people that we are of have to earn ourselves we have to earn each other and there's a lot of folks who are like I'm like I don't know if you've earned me y'all <laughs> like I don't know if you really deserve all this black brilliance that we're bringing to y'all like mm -hmm. I don't know if y'all you know like you've been throwing it away for so long I right. just don't know if we can keep offering it to you but I want to point out two other strategies 
or a couple of strategies. One is that Lauren Olamina, after she leaves, after their acorn is smashed, starts going door to door and building deep relationships of trust with people and just being very explicit. Right. Like, this is my vision. This right. is what I want to see happen. Are you down? Are you not down? Let's keep building, which I often think of as the Zapatista model. Like it's like going door to door and building a relationship and doing that in an underground way rather than a big overt campaign funder driven model of organizing. Right. Like right. it's about the actual ideas being in motion. Mm-hmm. And the second piece is combating the isolation of trauma, of traumatic organizing experiences by moving into deeper relationship with allies and really understanding like Octavia challenge challenges me so much on this that everyone potentially is a revolutionary ally and we have to get to where we can see that which I think right now one of the ways we respond to trauma is like let's make ourselves very small like those all of those people are bad you know and we start putting more and more people into the the sets of people who are all horrible right um and then when folks within those say something like you know not all of us we're like we ridicule you too bitch it's like literally all of you right and i get it because i'm just like as a survivor of multiple kinds of oppression i'm also like it's easier for me if i just write you all off and don't have to try to figure out amongst you who might be good Mm -hmm. and what octavia pushes back on is you do not know where liberation is happening you don't know where those seeds have taken root you have to actually sit with people look in their eyes ask the key questions you need to know the answers to and actually sense at a gut level is this someone who's trustworthy this is why i'll do all i'm doing all this somatics all the time because i'm like you know i i remember doing organizing with people where i was like are you a federal agent like are you someone trustworthy are you coming from some Mm, mm, place like I don't trust it. I can't tell you why there's no like reason but I just don't feel safe and you know then weird shit happened like my house got broken into and other stuff where I was like well "Mm, I should have trusted my gut it's really interesting too because if you can get in touch with that that deep gut sensation of whether someone is hiding from you or not like there's a lot that you can actually put up with in in relationship with others if you know on a fundamental level this person is worthy of my trust they might make mistakes they might even at sometimes like lie or deceive or just be less than their best self but if I know that on a gut level like I can trust them they have my back and they trust me to have their back then like there's a lot you can actually move through and yeah. I mean, this kind of goes back to the, um, you know, the episode that we did, I think, in the first season about like sometimes yeah. people are disappointing. And I think that like, it's true, you know, one it's of really the true. one of the one of the realities of of our movements is that because we are all working as hard as we can inside of chronically traumatic conditions and we yeah. are dealing with so much internal internal to our bodies disorder yes. and then internal to our movements disorder people are going to be disappointing people are going to make mistakes yeah. we do have to be able to hold each other accountable and there's so much more <laughs> there's so much more possibility that comes from extending trust to one another yes than the possibility yeah. that comes from trying to figure out just who are the few people who are our people you know, yes. <laughs> and only working I with deeply, those folks. deeply, deeply agree with this autumn. Like this to me is actually the piece that I think people miss the most often. Like when I do the work around emergent strategy or when I talk about trust and I'm like, you have to move at the speed of trust and mm-hmm. um, trust the people or they become untrustworthy. Like, you know, these are words from others that have flown through my river. And I'm like, 
it's not a game. Like mm-hmm. people really are like, oh yeah, trust. Like let's do one trust building activity and then let's get to work. And like as soon as someone trust causes is harm, the work, y'all, trusting is the work, but also recovering from harm to rebuild trust by being fucking honest is the other really hard work that people don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, in situations like this where the dangers are very real, actually moving at the speed of trust, like moving slower, and it's so hard to move slower with urgent conditions. Like, I understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we put ourselves and our communities in so much danger when we try to move quickly in a reactionary way to conditions that are exact. That I mean, I'm just like, this, this administration is trying to get us to react all the time. It's decentering us all the time so that we won't be able to make strategic moves towards a future beyond it. And exactly. I think it's really crucial for us to say, no, we want to slow down. We want to deepen into trust. We want to deepen into relationship with each other. That will be worth it in the long run. Like that's what we're fighting for. And we also want to know what is the ground worth fighting for and the ground not worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another lesson that Octavia teaches us is like not every ground is worth the fight. You know, like it might be like too late for Oregon. It might be too late for certain places, you know, to just it's like you've made a certain commitment, you know, to white supremacy or to patriarchy or to this place. And sometimes I do feel that way with the U.S., right, where I'm just sort Mm -hmm. of like, is it, you know, and I I was talking about this last thing someday recently. I don't know. But I was talking about this recently (laughs) where I was I was remembering in my cellular level that we didn't even want to come here, right? <laughs> like, I feel like there's this all the time, this thing of like, oh, we're here in the in America. It's American. It's so important. And mm-hmm. I'm remembering that, you know, there were like slaves who landed in this country with no sense of where they were, with no sense right. of this right. American experiment or having to be involved in it. All of that has been like black people saying, okay, like in spite of everything you have done, I'm going to fight for my humanity and fight for it here. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to continue to fight for it here. And there's so much now that I'm like, how do we continue to fight for the humanity rather than the nation? How do we continue to fight for our humanity rather than the borders, rather than the concept of, you know, Mm -hmm. the nation has a concept of itself. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to have any more arguments about the concept America has of itself and what was said by our founding fathers and all this bullshit. I don't care. What I care about (laughs) is how do we stop how do we actually engage and get excited about those who create change rather than repressing and killing them and right. attacking them and trolling them? And then how do we as movements create a space that is undeniable and irresistible where change is happening so it can sustain us through the trauma that is inevitable in this time? Right. And how do we do what many, many incredible movements have modeled around the globe, which is to actually you know, I mean, leaning on that old anarchist principle of like building the new world in the shell of the old. How do we say we are going to begin building that network of visionary community right now? We're going to do whatever needs to be done underground and then we will allow it, you know, it'll be like mycelia. Like we will allow it to fruit when it's ready to, like the fruiting body will show up when it's ready to show up. Exactly. And those will be actual beacons of a different of different way of being like a different culture a different a different type of like way of even understanding like the institution of community like those things will actually emerge when they're ready to emerge but until then 
the focus is actually on building a relationship across time and space, yeah. building a different culture, building a different way of being a different set of agreements that like tie us and contract us to one another. Yeah. Like that, you know, is not actually where, where again, like we can use the internet as a tool for that, but the internet is not that thing. Oh, and I think that like, no. I think yeah. that this is another one of the areas where, um, where we kind of see some faltering in the movement right now is folks like um, not understanding, like kind of like mistaking the finger for the moon, you know, mm. not understanding that like, mm. like the nonprofit sector is not a movement building apparatus, but it can be used for movement building, but like nonprofits themselves, because of the way that they're structured and funded, that can't be the base of our movement. Right. right but it can right, be right. a space through which we organize movement work similar yes. to how like the internet cannot be the base of our relationships, but it can be a yes. tool that we use for, for deepening relationships or creating new ones. But I think that there is this thing that's happening right now where we are confusing some of those structures that yes. are available to us for this, we, we are confusing tools that are available to us for the structures that are actually going to give us the foundation that we need. I appreciate um, that. And so I feel like, <laughs> I do feel like, you know, how do we, how do we see the internet as a tool that helps us like spin the mycelia, but not see the internet yeah. as the mycelia itself. Do you know what I mean? I think that's, I think I do. And I think that there's some brilliance in that like Only I some. think yeah just a titch you know like a tiny <laughs> tiny little bit tiny of little brilliant. bit of brilliant. it's really, really small but I feel like <laughs> there's brilliance in that because the the internet is so cloying it's so tempting it's, it's so tempting right mm -hmm. it's a huge temptation to feel like oh you know I can measure this and thus I am having some impact right right, right. like this many people liked it. I am having this impact. And I feel like, you know, I'm not saying there's none. I know that I know even for my own life, I'm like, there's stuff that I post that I'm like, I know that that had impact. I get direct feedback on right. what that did for people. Like I know. And I think there's something around what movement actually means and what it means to be connected at the level of a vision for a new society that is backed up by being willing to be in practices of that new society. Mm. And I think that that is something that's very hard to measure on the internet without it just being a performance. Yeah. And it's time, like when something like this happens where someone is attacked by the state, killed by the state, you, it's sort of, to me, it always is a shaking moment of like performance will not do right? Performance will not be enough. Like the risks are actual risks. And so the, the changes and the practices and the rigor of our movements and the love and trust of our movements have to also be real because mm -hmm. we are not dealing with the illusions of the internet or the illusions of the state. We're dealing with the real impacts. Yeah. And on that piece around the mycelium, I think so much of my goal is for us to have the humility to build underground and 
to have the humility to be massive underground. And it's not as sexy. It's not as, you know, dynamic. You may not get invited, um, you know, to kick it with like Lena Waithe at the Oscars or whatever, right? Like it's a thing. You might just be like, I may never get to do that. You are throwing shade right now. I I did throw shade. Okay. I'm going to pull the shade back. No, I love it. Keep going. So I've been listening to a lot of But I'm just saying like it's less, it's less glamorous. And I, well, I do want to say, like I'm also a huge fan of the folks who are taking on the heavy load of being a public figure who's calling for change. Yes. Right? Like totally. it is a dangerous thing what Tarana Berg and Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza and other leaders are doing of saying like, I will take it on. I will step forward and I will let you listen to what I have to say right. and I will organize in a way that is visible at that level. I'm like that is incredibly brave. There's a massive risk that's being taken there mm-hmm. and I want to honor and respect that but it's also backed by real organizing. So that's right. the place where I'm like, it's real. It's it's not an illusion. It's not a petition. It's not, um, you know, it, it's a it's a real thing. Right. But I want to say that I want the movement underground. Um, and by underground, I don't mean like, you know, all of our phones are off all the time and no one knows. Like, I just mean like it's happening at the level of relationship, right? So it's not like a top secret movement that we called out for on a podcast. It's like we are building real relationships with each other (laughs) so that we create a mycelium network that is so strong that when a mushroom is plucked from it, you know, when it's something, a life form is snuffed out by the state, Mm -hmm. it doesn't take out the entire network. network. It doesn't take Mm -hmm. out the entire movement. It doesn't take Mm -hmm. out the entire vision. If anything, there's a way that it makes us stronger and it makes us more robust because we are like that is someone that we loved and our grief is going to galvanize us even more into action and we will continue moving forward um and i think that to me that's the place that i want our movements to get to where we are building such deep real trust and instead of canceling each other we are finding out something has gotten broken in our network how can we regenerate and regrow this connection because we don't have enough people to let any of them go and every single person that is taken from us has to matter so much Um, like I want that preciousness of the miracle of life to actually be present in our movements right like when you think about I don't know is it oak trees or is it redwoods that have this way of um, because their root structures are connected to one another, oak they trees, can actually yeah. oak trees. They can actually um, they can send nutrients to yes. the oak trees that are sick, right? Like they can yeah. actually like transmit resources amongst themselves in order yes. to care for the places where harm has happened. And, and the fungi like, are the ones who are telling them, like, "Yo, the are like, hey, someone needs help over here." Like, exactly. I just want us to be That's like the internet fungi <laughs> root people. Yes. <laughs> so um, on that yeah. note, I know that we need to close because we're we're coming up on time. Are um, we? I never notice. Well, I do just because I have to be have surgical with my time. Is yes. Um, <laughs> oh, can we? Oh, yeah. What were you going to say? You were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say that the um, fungi as the internet and oak trees as the actual movement feels like a great place to like pause. But it sounds like you might have like a one more special idea. Well, actually, no. I, it's, I mean, it may be special or not special, but there's something around also being ready to or being willing to take turns and rest when we need to take rest that I want to name here Um, because I feel like when we are grieving and we try to push forward it's like we Mm -hmm. take the grief you know it's like something horrific has happened to our community 
and we don't give ourselves room to actually move any of that trauma. And we just finished this past weekend, a year long course of somatics in Detroit. And it's all about how do we take trauma, heal it and sort of catalyze, um, transform and heal and catalyze that energy into movements. Um, and state repression is one of the main areas that generative somatics is really looking at. And it was just powerful to be with this group of folks, but to also see like trauma takes time to process. And if we don't give it time, there's another way that we are taking ourselves out. And we talked about it in our last episode, but I want to just really have it named that like we are also doing the work of the state without them having to do it when we are burning ourselves out and not attending to, I need time to grieve. I need time to change from one job to another. I need time to recover from a particular trauma that has happened in my movement. I need some time to recover. And so I wanted to, is it okay to share with people that you're actually going to be taking some of that time and actually (laughs) modeling something that we need to be doing? Yeah. So this is, this is my good news. Thank you, Adrian, for, um, pointing out that like, this is something that I can share that I, um, I recently got permission and a gift from my, um, my co-op aorta to be able to take a three month leave from work. Um, so I'm going to be taking January through March off um, of like all work basically yeah, and using that time to sleep, to heal, to write, um, and to do some travel that's really just related to like love and beloved work. Um, and instead of like paid work and, um, and, and it really is a gift from my co-op that I'm getting to do this. And I feel very like grateful that I, that I'm part of, a democratic formation where yeah. we really understand each other's bodies as like the main resource that we have. Right. Yes. <laughs> like yes. and each other's brilliance as the main resource that we have. And like, we recognize that any one of our ability to care for ourselves is actually the most important thing that we can do. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think it really, in speaking to the trauma piece, like I think it really took me, understanding that what's happening to me right now is has like roots that are like at least four years deep, you know, and recognizing that like I needed a break in 2014 when my baby died and when the board of the organization that I had been working as executive director at like fired me two weeks after my baby died. Right. Like that was such a traumatic experience that I didn't have, but I didn't have the time or the economic stability or I didn't have any of the things that I needed in place to be able to actually take the time to fully go through that experience. Yeah. And I think that some part of me over the last few years really thought like, it's fine. It's in the past. I've like done a lot of my healing work around it. I don't need a break from that. Like I need a break, but it's not about that. And I think part of what happened for me in the last couple of months is really connecting the dots and being like, you know, there are many layers of trauma, obviously that I and anyone in my situation would be needing to work through. But there is something in terms of like what's happened to me over the last four years that is very related to that particular a particular set of conditions in which, you know, because like it was an experience of, of um, having people come after me that I thought were my people. 
Yes. That I had worked with and trusted as though they were my people and yes. they turned on me and they yeah. came for me and they took away my yeah. livelihood. Right. Yes. Like that was so frightening. It was so yeah. frightening to experience. And I think that I really haven't had the space to really like work through what it meant to, to actually have a group of people come for me like that. Yeah. You yes. know what I mean? And, yeah. um, and, and so that I would say, I mean, and that group, like really those that coming for you rooted in exactly these same larger systems of oppression oh, that exactly. we're talking exactly. about. Right? It was a that completely it's like, like repressive act of like, yes. we will not allow this person of color to have any kind of structural power mm. and we're going to do yes. whatever it takes to like remove them from having any kind of power. Yes. And so... So I know that part of what will happen for me during this break is that I'm going to have to deal with everything that resurfaces in relationship to that. You go cry. That's what the break you is sleep, for, right? You gonna like have, to have a good time. Right. Yeah. I'm just going to cry. <laughs> I'm going to sleep. I'm going to masturbate a lot. I'm going Yay. to write. I'm so proud I'm going of you. To, yes. I'm just going to like do all the things that are part of my healing process. That's Get great. yours. Um <laughs> I really want to thank you for being able to do this episode and actually being able to reach a place of connection and joy in it because I was I was feeling some trepidation coming into it because um, I'm like this is a really this is these were hard things to live through and they're hard things to talk about and it's hard yeah. to still be in a situation where it's true yeah. and I deeply believe in the deeper relationships we need in committing to the rest we need into looking beyond our expectations for allies and. And then at a certain point, being willing to give ourselves completely to the journey, whatever it takes. Yeah. And like resting yes. along the way. And yes. like, here we are doing that. So I love you so much. I love you too. I'm grateful beyond measure for this project that we're doing together and all the ways that it just changes me and supports me and holds me accountable to like my truth and my highest good. Um, and I just love you so much. Mm. I feel the same um, way. I love you. And I feel really protective of you. Right. <laughs> like I'm like, if the state wants to come for you, they have to come through me. All right. <laughs> I'd be scared of anyone who go up against you. Cause I know you're a Scorpio rising. Wait, Aries rising Scorpio moon. It's scary up in there. <laughs> I mean, I would you know. not want to, I would not want to be on your bad side is what I'm saying. Astrologically. I, I feel the same way. Exactly. <laughs> People don't know. All right. People don't know. All right. Thanks for listening to our show. Yeah. <laughs> We're um, on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. And we are bringing all of our rising and moons, everything to this show. We are. We really are. Um, you can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash into the world show. And it really, really helps every single person involved in the show to be able to show up for it and keep working on it. Mm -hmm. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you are an iPhone person, thank you. And if you want in that review to let me know why um, Aries Rising is not like scary from a conflict perspective, I'm happy to be corrected about that. I just, I'm working with stereotypes. I know that. I mean, I have to say that I have been learning to be in conflict well. Like, so my, I've been like, wait, I can fight you. I'm going to fight you. I will fight you. Um, 
So, uh, you know, but I feel like that changes when it comes to you and the kids in April. And you, like, there's just certain people where I'm just like, oh, now we're going to fight. Um, now we're going to fight, bitch. Now we're going to fight. And I'm going to learn some Aikido to do that. Like, I have the universe in my back. Mm-hmm. So I do want to say that How to Survive the End of the World is produced <laughs> and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran. Wait, did you know that Tunde Alaniran dropped an album today? That's right. Say the yes. name. Say the so name. So the album is called Stranger. I've been listening to it on NPR's first listen, like nonstop for the past week and a half. It is a brilliant, deep, vulnerable, loving album, like with banger after banger after banger. Okay. And it's it's really, really, really. And I'm not just saying this because like <laughs> I love Teen Day so much. Like I actually object as objectively as I can say it. Like it's a values aligned album. He's a genius and the album is really brilliant and really beautiful and good pop. It's like good pop that talks about being vulnerable in love and I'm like, I've been waiting for it. So I just oh, want to say that. I'm so excited. And we can find Tune it where? Day. Like Spotify. So it's literally everywhere Idol. that music is. Like he's a real musician. <laughs> so right. it's he's like, like I'm actually famous. So Yeah, he's like actually famous and it's an actual famous album. He has a song in there called Celine Dion. Like I just okay. you just have to Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So it's my so heart good. will go on. Yes, um, all right. I love you so much. Let's turn I love on. you so much. I'm going to stop recording now. Mm-hmm.